is now being recorded. We are SC Podcast Trojan Law Blitz Edition. Gary Pasquitz joined by Lizelle Brandt. And Lizelle, we are going to sit here and uh, discuss where things are with the Todd McNair case as uh, the lawyers made their closing arguments on Friday and the jury will get the case on Monday. Uh, you, as a practicing attorney, have a unique perspective on this case with the fact that you covered Todd McNair and so much. So I want to sit here and ask you how your perception is. We're going to talk about the two attorneys and the cases they made. Let's talk about Bruce Rollette first, his closing arguments. What was he effective in getting across to the jury? Sure, Gary. I would say the biggest thing that Bruce Borlett was able to get across to the jury was just a picture. He was able to paint a very clear and solid picture of this big, bad organization, the NCAA, who had a vendetta, who wanted to set an example out of the big powerhouse USC by imposing sanctions on it. But it needed somebody. It needed a hook in order to impose these big sad sanctions to make an example, and that person, unfortunately, was Todd McNair. Todd McNair was the collateral damage, and in order to get their hooks into USC, they changed the report. They changed the facts in the Committee of Infractions report, and I think that through the testimony that was shown, the evidence, the emails, which he also brought up in closing argument, he was able to really effectively paint this picture, but also to humanize McNair. He talked about how Todd McNair was on the field playing football since age seven, went through the pros, played, went into coaching, and coached right up until the NCAA wrongfully took away. And again, he mentioned the fact that the way that they had to do that was to lie about Todd McNair, to change the facts, to, in effect, defame him. The other thing that Roylet was able to effectively paint was the idea of this NCAA organization having absolute power. They are the judge, the jury, the executioner. They have their own rules. They can bend it under the guise of confidentiality. This can obviously go wrongfully the, the wrong way, and it's what happened to Todd McNair. Roylet ends by saying, thank goodness that there are people like Todd McNair out there for all of us, for all of the coaches, that he stood up for them and kind of makes them sort of a hero, I would say. So he was able to, in broad strokes, paint that. Now, in closing, of course, the burden on this to prove defamation is on McNair since he is the plaintiff. So the other good thing that Borlet did a good job of doing was going down the jury verdict form. Because when the jury goes into the deliberations, they're going to have I don't want to say like Madeline, but there's this nine-step process, this list of nine questions that they need to answer. If you answer yes to one, then you can get to number two. If you answer yes, you can get to number three. So the first would be, was a statement of fact made? And Borlet puts up slides to show yes, the statements were fact. And to be clear, actually, there are three statements that McNair is, caught, is accusing the SCAA of defaming him on. The first would be the... June 10, 2010 Committee on Infractions report in which they lay out the charges against him of knowing that Bush had received the benefits. The second would be the December 15, 2010 statement by NCAA President Mark Emmert in which he said that he believed the, the findings of the Committee of Infractions. And then the third statement would be the April 29, 2011, Infractions Appeals Committee report, which affirmed the ruling of the Committee of Infractions. Because since this is defamation, Gary, you need to prove that there was a statement that was made that was false. So, and so 
Yes, second element was just about Todd McNair. Yes, and as Borlet is doing this, he's got these elements on the big screen, and he's uh, putting these check marks that show, yes, this was met, this is how it was, was met, and he's going through the evidence. He's putting up screenshots of all of the emails and from February to 2000, February 2010 to March 2010 involving Pop, Cooper, Howard, the three musketeers, as he had referred to, or didn't want to refer to it, I'd say, because he said that would be complimenting them. Get to the third oh, element. Oh, that's funny. Were these, were, these, were these three statements false? He says, yes, absolutely, because they actually had to change the Committee of Infractions report, paraphrase it, as he said, beyond what was actually stated in the interviews by Lake. So he went through that. Did they know that they were false? Again, yes, because they rewrote it. Did the fifth element, did they know that it would cause injury to the, the plaintiff and or his occupation? Of course, obviously, we had the damages experts for Muses up there testifying as to that. Did Todd McNair suffer harm? Yes, obviously. So he that he's there able to point the picture of Todd McNair on the stand, very emotional, crying, not even able to speak when he saw the career that he did have. Was he damaged? Mm-hmm. That's the eighth element. Yes, he goes into, this is when he actually went into the figure of $7 million in actual damages for the career based on the expert projection. So that would be based on the past loss of earnings and then the future projected loss of earnings based on him being in the 75th percentile of coaching when he was, uh, when he was let go from USC in 2000, in 2010. And then in the, and then when he gets to the punitive damages, that's nine. That's, of course, going to be bifurcated. We'll talk about that later, which means that it is going to be a separate mini trial after that. It talks about the elements as well. But what I really liked about what he did was that he walked the jury through what they were going to be doing uh, starting on Monday and how these check marks are going to work. He explained it because you see all of this legal language, but he was able to explain it and then immediately point you to the piece of evidence that you're going to want to look at that proves this. It was very effective, actually, the way that he was doing that screenshot. And I'm going to talk a little bit about and going off on a little geeky tangent here, but with the he was using screenshots when he was talking about his evidence. So Ikovic, on the other hand, was doing a lot more of retyping of the statements that were made. And I don't know how effective that that was going to be. We'll, we'll talk about that more with Story Kovic. But it was very effective because you would see evidence after piece of evidence going up, going up. And it was a lot of evidence in support of Todd McNair. And I think that when you saw it, one piece of email, transcript, testament, everything going up right after the other, very, very effective, I think, just sitting there um, in the audience watching. Uh, the other thing that okay. I think that Burlett did very well was his theme. He went to Bob Dylan's, you don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, and he would come back after it over and over again when he would go to each of the committee of infractions members who said, no, I was not influenced by this email that I, from, you know, Roscoe Howard or uh, Rodney Uphoff, Shep Cooper, and when he would uh, see, see those statements, uh, Burlett would look at the jury and be and say, you don't need to be a weatherman. Or he'd say, the other thing he'd go back to is malarkey. He really liked saying the word malarkey, which which played pretty well to him, you know, invoking Joe Biden. And, yeah. so Okay. Very and uh, it, it sounds like it. And, and if we're going to go to the NCAA lawyer, Kostas Stojilopic, um, he started off right away kind of, kind of paying a tribute to Burlett, I thought. 
saying, no, Todd McNair is not the star witness. It's, it's the counselor. It's the right. counselor brulette for how effective he was. He was the star witness. Exactly, because and he it was a perfect play because before that actually, Borlette had mentioned that his star witness that he'd pin his hopes to would be Todd uh-huh. McNair. He's the star witness. He's the most credible. So right when Stoichkovic comes out and he 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 starts talking about who's the one that suggested that that when he was asking the questions that Lloyd Lake was drunk. Who was the one that was suggesting that the photo was cropped? It wasn't Todd McNair who said that. It wasn't any of these Committee of Infractions members who said that. It wasn't anybody from the NCAA who said that. No, it was counsel for for Todd McNair Mm -hmm. was saying that. The other thing that he had said, and I think I had mentioned this at the last point podcast, is one of for less effective strategies is he would ask a question that for legal purposes wasn't um, a question that would be allowed and you could object to it. Uh, things like, did you know that, uh, was, was uh, Lake drunk when he called you? And obviously you could object to that and he would immediately just withdraw. But the question was already out there. So it's kind of like the seed was planted. So, so it mm-hmm. comes out on that and he calls him out on that and says, how many times did counsel for McNair ask you a question and then withdraw? And he'd say, let me remind you that that is not evidence. The real star witness here wasn't really Todd McNair. It was Boris Borlet. And right. in the audience, I'm sitting with a lot of the reporters and we're kind of nodding like, yeah, he's, there's, there's some shred of truth to that. He is. He's somewhat of a star in terms of how he was able to effectively communicate just by himself being the lawyer and asking questions when the evidence really is the answers. The evidence is the record, the answers of the witnesses. It isn't the questions of the lawyers, as um, as uh, Stoykovic was, was saying. So right. that that was a good way, to, I would say, to open it. The other thing that he had mentioned uh, – before there was, cause he, he had started his closing argument and then there was the, the break after that, actually the lunch break. But one of the things he was able to get in there was he said that there was selective amnesia by Todd McNair. So the, I would say in terms of what he was effective in doing is, and this is, this can go one way or the other. He pointed out to inconsistencies. He obviously, as we said, credibility would be a pretty big factor in this, whether or not you believe Todd McNair. So they pointed to, I'd say, four big inconsistencies that they claim Todd McNair made. The first was as to uh, October 29, 2005, the calls to Lake. Again, Stoichkovic brings up selective amnesia. He had said, why is it that Todd McNair can recall that Bush told him that his phone was running out that night, you know, October 29, 2005, but McNair could not recall uh, if he went back to get Percy Harbin was this convenient and he, he's putting up the evidence there and the jury is writing it down. So I know the explanation that Borlet had made and that McNair had made. And I know a lot of people are hoping that they would remember if you're a USC fan, that the jury would also um, remember that when they come to evaluating that as well as the other three other inconsistencies that Story Kubik had pointed out in terms of the January 8th, 2006 call with Lake, who do you believe, Todd McNair, you know, versus Lloyd Lake, how he had changed his story over time. But quite frankly, with that January 8th call, I sit there and I think, well, the first time that you would ask him, you asked him about 2005. Of course, he wouldn't remember it because it wasn't in 2005. So I, I don't know how fair that was to bring up. The third one, contact with Bush. Again, it's, you know, you're, we're parsing words here, whether or not he was intending to be deceiving, I could see McNair's explanation, as well as were you inside the Chevy Impala. 
and Gannon seen words. Yes, he was with it. Todd McNair had clarified it. You know, he hadn't actually ridden in the car. He had just ultimately been inside it. But the consistency that was put up was one time he said he didn't, another time he said that he did. But again, in testimony at trial, he had clarified that he hadn't ridden inside of it. So it'll be interesting to see how the jury takes that with the inconsistencies. But I think that the most effective part of uh, Klovic's closing argument was when he went to address the damages. The damages, because they're claiming $27 million in damages, actual and uh, and the economic and, and non-economic damages. But he really, really hammered on what we've been thinking from the beginning, the questionable efforts to try to get a job. He led with a great line, which is, if you don't try, you don't get to ask for damages. And he talked about the 32 NFL teams there, the 670 NCAA programs, and only three calls were made. So mm-hmm. and the other quote that he put up that I think is potentially damaging is uh, when McNair testified, people call me. I don't call people. People call me. And I don't know how well that would play in front of a jury. I, I understand what he's saying, but I just don't know how, how well that would play. Uh, Stoy Kovic also talked about the fact that the two NFL teams that he potentially could have gotten jobs with, the Seahawks and the Cardinals, he talked about how they had hired people with unethical uh, backgrounds in the past. So why is it that McNair couldn't get jobs? Uh, Stoy Kovic suggested it may have something to do with the dog neglect issues out there. And not sure how much that would stick, but that seems to be their explanation, that it really had nothing to do with the NCAA. Maybe a lot of this is that, the whole situation with dogs. So, yeah, I'm not sure how that will pay, play out, but it, it did seem to um, stand there. The jury was writing it down when you're talking about 670 teams out there, only three calls made. Uh, McNair's mm-hmm. argument, of course, is that the Cardinals, he almost got a job with the Cardinals in 2013, and now he's got a coaching job at Village Christian. So, yes, he has made efforts. Um, right. Yeah, but, but that one, to, that one oh, statement. Uh, let me just say the one statement that you, like you say, the I, I, I'm used to getting people calling me. I'm not used to calling people. Like, like you say, but both of us, when we heard that statement and we talked about it, it was, oh, oh, that that one might not be playing so well with the jury. Right. That, I was sitting with some of right the there. other reporters, and we looked at each other when he had, when he had testified, and that was something like, where, yeah, I don't know. I understand what he's saying. Uh, right. Not sure again how that would would play with the jury. Uh, one of the interesting things that he did bring up and he got hammered on it later on is why didn't you call up Reggie Bush, Pete Carroll, Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin, all of these people to vouch for you, USC, actually, in particular. He made a big deal about USC. They're only a mile away. Why didn't they come out here to testify on your behalf? And then he also mentions Lick. Why didn't you call Lick to cross-examine him? That actually came back to him when we talked about rebuttal. Uh, when when um, Borlet came to address that, so I would say, okay. oh no, he was pretty effective, Stoyakovic, effective. But I would say the most effective was when he was talking about the damages and the uh-huh. lack of effort. So I think that mitigation, if the jury gets to finding in favor of McNair, I, that will probably play a factor. And, and talk about the the argument you made. You know, what, what was the motive of the committee of infractions? Why were they singling out Todd McNair yeah. and him saying, "Oh, the, the, there was no increased penalties by having Todd McNair tied in." Malarkey. Oh, yes, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, I had that. It was another piece of, yeah, yes. He did mention that, and that was his big question mark. He had this graphic and a big question mark on the screen, and his going back to common sense, he says, "What was the NCAA's motive? Why would they do this?" 
obviously USC's answer, I mean, the, McNair's answer is that they needed McNair in order to tie USC to ratchet up the penalties. And you look yeah. at the end, Borlet was going to definitely did hit back on that in rebuttal. Over and over again, you're seeing these scholarships, the scholarship limitations escalate from 6 to 30, the postseason ban from 1 to 2, it's not a small increase. It was huge, and it didn't happen until after the findings of McNair. So I don't know how they credibly argue that this wasn't related to to USC at all. Uh, quite frankly, I think that this may be related to potential defense against a, a USC lawsuit if they're thinking of it. You want to distance yourself from that. You don't want to say that this has anything to do with, with USC. You want to keep it with Jess McNair so that it can limit the implications, the damage. Very interesting. Okay, then like you say, uh, Brolette had a rebuttal. Tell us what jumped out to you for the jurors from what he said. Right. So we already talked about the penalties. He really he jumped on that. The penalties went from 6 to 30 again, postseason from uh-huh. one year to two years. So he, he nailed him on that. He got right back at them as far as Lloyd Lake. He talked about how why would they call up Lloyd Lake? He's not like their start witness. He's their start witness. And, and he asked, well, the NCAA could have called up Lloyd Lake. He's their star witness. Why didn't they? Because everybody knows that he's a liar. And I thought that was very effective because you've got these questions of his credibility. Todd McNair came up and very likable when he was on the stand from what I could see. I could see that the jury, the jury did like Todd McNair. So that I think kind of went uh, into his face. Uh, from a personal perspective, he, he, he talked about how, well, the NCAA could have called up the other witnesses, but they didn't. And so it'd be interesting to see how that would work with the jury. Would they still be wondering, yeah, but still, why didn't they call up USC or Pete Carroll, something like that, Reggie Bush? I don't know how that's playing off with the jury. But uh, he did have an answer, which was that uh, it was not up to them to do that. The NCAA could have called them up if they wanted to. So, mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, can you talk about the, the statement Brolette made, to, uh, quoting Eleanor Myers, we did the best we could? Yeah, he said, he said, the, he also brought up that, again, his big thing was the NCAA abused its power, that they knew that they weren't going to have any checks on it, and when they were pressed on it, the best they could come up with was, the, the we did the best we we could with what they had. But the problem is you can't defame somebody if you're going to do that. And he took it right back to they needed to change that. They needed to change the facts in order to ratchet up the penalties. He went to – there was an email from a Stacey Osborne in 2007 from the NCAA talking about how uh, the media was pressuring them, The a lot of schools saying that the NCAA was too soft on the powerful institutions, that they needed to make an example out of USC, which is – again, the motive. So they took it right back to them. And the other thing uh, that Borlet did that was pretty effective, and I'm, I'm pretty sure was planned because he knew that he was going to be a rebuttal, is that uh, earlier in the closing, he had there was this pretty emotional moment when he talked about, when he was mentioning that his star witness was Todd McNair. And when he was going through all of the evidence and he was putting up screenshots, one of the screenshots that he had put up was that email where uh, you had Howard saying that uh, that Todd McNair should not be coaching at, quote, any level. And immediately after that, Borlet says that, you know, he McNair will be coaching. He'll be coaching at Village Christian this fall. And what Borlet said was, and I'm quoting him, he says, that first football day, game, I am there. I want to see him back. 
And when he was doing that, I got to tell you, Gary, I was having a hard time trying to not tear up because it was it, it was just a moment. Um, just like, you know, just you could feel how long he'd been off the field, how much he wanted to be back on there, and he's going to get his chance this fall with Village Christian. And you could see Todd McNair because I was sitting about two people behind him, and you could see him just very quietly not not trying to be showy or anything like that. I don't even know if the jury saw it, but he was quietly just wiping a couple of tears away. He was sitting next to his wife, Lynette McNair. It was a pretty emotional moment. And so he, so Burlette mentions that, how he's going to be there. And then he ties it all up at the very end with his last words to the jury in rebuttal, where he invokes the presidential election. He says, he empowers them, actually. He says that they say elections have consequences. And he empowers them by saying, you, the jury, have the power to fix it. You have the power to tell the NCAA it cannot do it again. And in the end, he says, you will always be known as Todd McNair's jury. It was a very powerful way to end it, very empowering. Very empowering. And uh, again, a testament to what a great attorney it is. Just a pleasure watching both him actually and Soy Club at the, just handling this case. So, yeah. Let, let's ask a couple of procedural things. Uh, let's talk about the Infractions Appeals Committee member who spoke, uh, how she just kind of rubber stamped everything. And then before the closing arguments, the, uh, the breach of contract and the negligence actions were dropped. Uh, what's your read on that? Okay, so I guess taking it, the first thing with Patricia Ollendorf and the Appeals Committee, as I had mentioned, I even made a post on this on, on WeRC, I was pretty shocked. I didn't know the level, I guess, the lack of information that was considered by the Infractions Appeals Committee when McNair had made his appeal because his attorney, um, Tom said, actually, had brought up these concerns about the the lake call and the factual inaccuracies in the in the report. And so the basic question would be is if the linchpin is in the Committee of Infractions that actually said it, the linchpin was that January 8, 2006 call, wouldn't you want to get the complete transcript of that interview with Lloyd Lake? One would think. And one would think. One would think. One would totally think. But, no, they didn't request that. That came out that they didn't request it. The other thing is that they didn't know about any of this interference, uh, this active participation by the coordinator, uh, the coordinator of appeals, Rodney Uphoff, who by the bylaws is prohibited from doing that. Um, also, unfair par- participation by people that weren't on the Committee of Infractions yet, Cooper and Roscoe Howard. So he's asking one of these questions, did you know about this? Did you see this? Did you see this? And, and she said, no, she didn't know about any of that when they made their ruling. And one of the ways that you can overturn the Committee of Infractions report findings and penalties is if there is, was something wrong with the process. And to me, I'm looking at that, and that is definitely something that was wrong with the process. You're you're an mm-hmm. appeals committee. You're supposed to look at the evaluation process to see if anything was done wrong. And I don't know how you don't get the transcript of that that interview when that call was so central to the finding. And it just speaks a lot to an even prior to that, and it was Mark Emmert saying that he was that he agreed with the report and yeah, actually, I do want to get you one quick point, actually, to Stoyakovic. This is a little bit randomly um, getting into the details of defamation. So remember how I said that there were three statements that uh, that they were claiming as far as defamation? Stoyakovic, I think, pretty effectively pointed out that the 
statement by NCAA President Mark Emmert about how he agreed with the report, he argued that that was not uh, a statement, that it was an opinion. And he actually put the quote up there where Emmert said, it took them, and I'm quoting, it took them a long time, but I, but they got it right, comma, I think. So, Strykovic highlights the word I think, and he says, this is opinion. So, um, when I'm looking at that as an attorney, I think maybe there, there is an argument that it, that is an opinion versus a statement of fact. He is saying his opinion. So when the jury goes back to deliberate, and this is, again, a side note as far as defamation, uh, they only have to find at least as to one of the three claims being right, but I don't know how strong that specific argument is as to that statement with that was made by Mark Emmert. But um, anyways, that was just an aside. So getting mm-hmm. back to your second question procedurally, which were, were you asking about? Were you asking about the breach of contract negligence? Was that the second part? Yeah, let, 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 and, and let's talk about that when we get uh – after we talk about the jury really quick, because I think this is a good point to ask you, what you, what is your read of the jury? Now that you've heard all this and, and you heard the arguments that were made, just what's your read of what the jury's thinking right now going into Monday? My read on the jury, and I want to qualify this by saying that I have not been there every single day, but uh-huh. from what I've seen, I've been there especially for Todd McNair's testimony, for Rodney Uphoff's testimony. I think that they have been – laughing when Borlet wanted them to laugh. They have been smiling with Todd McNair. I, I would say that their reactions, I've, I've paid a lot of attention to the jury, and I would say that generally their reactions seem to be, I would say, generally sympathetic to Todd McNair from what I could see. They take notes a lot when when a party is pretty good at effectively impeaching. I would. They took a lot of notes when it was related to the, again, Todd McNair's efforts to find a job. They were taking a lot of notes with the Uphoff emails and the, the Chef Cooper, where you would expect them to, to take notes at. And so my read is I, I think that I would say they're leaning more in, in favor of McNair, of, of finding in his favor, but I don't know if they're going to find for the same amount that they're going to be requesting just because of the amount of damages. But, uh-huh. um, we, you know, Gary, what I, what I think really doesn't matter because it matters what the, the, what the 12 people on the jury sure. would say. I would say likability has a big factor. Years ago when I uh, used to prosecute crimes for the L.A. County DA's office, the I actually had a case where I thought it was a pretty good case um, to get somebody guilty and the and the, the jury came back as not guilty, and you're able to, t- to talk to the jury afterwards. So I did, and I asked them um, what they thought. And uh, so, well, while they said that, you know, we did a pretty effective job, uh, one of them actually said, and stuck with me, she, she said that she thought that the defendant was guilty, but he was really nice, and she really liked him, so she wouldn't she wouldn't vote guilty for him. And one of the examples that she cited was that he had opened the door for her one time, and because of that, she found him nice, and so she wasn't going to find against him. So, you, you know, you just never know. Likeability is a huge factor. And I think he, Todd McNair, came across as very likable, not just him, but actually Bruce Borlet. He has a very self-deprecating way about him, whether it's asking McNair if he could turn him into a Heisman Trophy winner, 
or in closing argument, actually, he read uh, something on the screen and he said, the, I guess the word was short. And then Mary, I mean, Burlett said, I don't like the word short. Looks at the jury and the jury starts laughing for obvious reasons because he's, he's five foot two. So his ability to connect with the jury, to make them, them like him and also McNary, uh-huh. that that is going to play, I, I think that's very important. Okay, and then just before the closing arguments, the the, the, con- the breach of contract and negligence actions were dropped. Uh, mm-hmm. What was your read on that? My read on that is, I mean, going into it, I would just say, was there a breach? Yes, definitely with Article 19. If you want to talk about a clear breach in terms of the coordinator of appeals and asserting himself actively participating in the deliberations, yes, that is a breach. Uh, the question would be, is and I think this is what happened was was standing is did McNair have the right to assert those claims now USC would definitely be the stronger plaintiff on them because they are the member institution with because that uh-huh. goes to the NCAA ma- manual and the bylaw bylaws and this is you know agree an agreement that these member institutions would adhere to these rules um, but they would also be protected by them by the NCAA so the question is well. Is McNair, as an employee, somebody who could use that uh, in terms of uh, the holding them to the same requirements under those bylaws for both? Because uh, if you can get a breach of contract, you could also argue negligence by saying this breach of the contract is cause them the harm. It's called negligence per se, just violating that exact bylaw. But, again, the question is, would he be able to, to do that? I would say he had an argument just because if you're going to hold him to the same standards under that manual and you're going to penalize him because of that, he should be able to then invoke that manual as a breach of contract. But maybe the attorneys, for whatever reason or another, I wasn't there when they dropped it. I just heard that they did. They may have just thought that uh, this might confuse the jury. They might not like it because it doesn't say, you know, Todd McNair listed here as an exact party to this contract. It's more institution-based. So maybe they did that to make it less, I get more clear and just hang their hats on, on defamation. I, I'm not sure the reasoning behind that. That's, that's my guess. Okay, and so that leads into uh, a question that a lot of USC fans know. If this thing is in any way in favor of Todd McNair on whatever level, uh, is there any recourse for USC against the NCAA? Oh, gosh, Gary, that, that is the million-dollar question. It and is. My, it is. My answer is uh, it, it really depends on what USC knew and when it knew. And the reason why I say that is because if you're talking about breach of contract, by that I mean the bylaws of the NCAA manual as to who can uh, interfere, who can be, be involved in the Committee of Infractions uh, uh, deliberations, that was Article 19, and also just the fair process of what had happened and even even as to the policies of the infractions appeals committee so not just the committee of infractions but the infractions appeals committee that uh-huh. all, if you're talking about a contract being in california written contract breach of written contract statute of limitations is four years uh from not necessarily from the breach you can make an argument gary as to when you should have known from the breach happened and that's pretty significant because these decisions obviously came out in 2010 for the Committee of Infractions and then in April of 2011 for the Appeals Committee, which affirmed the Committee of Infractions. So 
the problem is, the, the, the question, big question is, a lot of the issues that people had with it, that McNair had, was these emails where you're talking about uh-huh. from from Howard Uphoff Cooper, their involvement, and then obviously later disclosed possibly in deposition was uh, just Joe Petuto and how she was biased because she had watched that Real Force with a bright Bumble special said that she found late credible ahead of time before, and she, that was two years before she was put on the Committee of Infractions. Should she have disclosed that? Yes, actually, that's potential bias. Uh, Boylet hammered that as well, actually, in the closing argument when he told the jury. He, he told the jury, if you had told me that you had already found Lloyd late credible, um, I understand that. There's nothing wrong with that, but thank you. You don't, you shouldn't be on the jury. And that, mm-hmm. that hit, that went out over really well with the jury. Uh, he, again, did a very effective job of painting the picture of you, the jury, you're in deliberations. How would you like it if somebody came to you and started injecting themselves in your deliberation when they really have no part in doing so? But they back to USC and their, their recourse. So the, the question is these emails, when did they come out? When did USC know about that? Now, I know that in March 2015, the, the records were unsealed by order of the Court of Appeals. Remember, that was a big argument, uh-huh. um, that they had. So what I don't know, and this is something to, that USC would better know, is when did USC know about that? Was it that, was it first in March 2015 when those were unsealed? Or was it earlier? Because McNair actually already had those documents. It was just a matter of unsealing them. Now, when the appeal had been affirmed by uh, in 2011 uh, against McNair, he filed the lawsuit shortly right after in June of 2011. USC didn't file a lawsuit. USC accepted the May uh, affirmation that of, of the rulings against USC, and USC kind of ended it there. But McNair, when he filed the lawsuit, was entitled to discovery. So the question becomes, when he got this information from the NCAA, copies of these emails, uh, did USC have access to that? I would think, I would think no, just based on how much the NCAA was protective of it. It's confidential under the bylaws. And the fact that they fought over it so much, my guess is that when they produced those documents to McNair, they might have produced it under a protective order, is what it's called, where Lawyers and parties agree that you're going to keep this confidential where only you can view that. So I think there's a chance that USC, but I don't 100% know if they, uh, if they would have known about those before they were publicized in March of 2015. Because if they were, if the first time USC found about that, found out about those and Apop's involvement when he shouldn't have been involved was March 2015, then you say, okay, four years from then, I think USC does have an argument about it not you know, the whole should you have known by then when, when, well, there's no way for them to know about this because by the bylaws of the NCAA, the deliberations are kept confidential. So if they're the only people that have access to it and they won't give you access to it, then again, you can, it's called toll. You can put the statute of limitations on hold and uh, and you can argue it from that, from that point, March of 2015, which would, of course, put the four-year statute of limitations at March 2000, uh, March 2019. So it, it arguably does give them some time, but again, I'm not clear on exactly what and when USC knew about that. So that, that's something USC would know. And, and in March of 2015, when the emails were unsealed and released, 
USC put out a statement from their counsel, and Pat Hayden put out a statement. And both of them included a, a line, and I'll paraphrase, something to the effect of, we, 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 we note that you did not follow your own established guidelines in this regard. So the fact that they pointed that out certainly would lead me to believe you didn't know about it before that time. Um, yeah, the, that was the that was given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Actually, when they had that, that when I when I had read that, that's what I took. I don't again, I don't 100 percent know, but that's what it to uh-huh. me. It seems su- surprising. And actually, I was there in the when they were arguing in front of the court of appeals a little bit, and I know that USC had representatives there, and they were you know pretty angry as well. And but I. I haven't seen them here at all at Charles, so I, I just don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional. Uh, I have not seen them there. So big question. What do they know? It, it, it again, boils down to what did USC know and when? And uh-huh. that, that's what is going to affect things. Well, it's, so. uh, this has been a fascinating ride. So, yeah, the, so what, what, what happens on Monday? There are some brief instructions from the judge, and, and then they go ahead and start deliberating. And just your educated guess, how long do you think uh, – the, the, the jury may take. Obviously, you can never know for sure, but uh, just an right. educated guess. Right. Educated guess. Uh, if this was three causes of action, I'd say this possibly might go into a second day, but there's a chance it could finish it within one day just because it is. There's nine questions. It's defamation, only one cause of action. So unless they have a lot of questions, they may have questions. My guess is if they do, it will be as to the definition of malice, which is one of the elements that he needs to prove because he's considered a limited public figure within the realm of you know, sports uh, because he was a well-known coach. So it just depends on how many questions they have. I am hoping that they finish within a day. One of the interesting things, though, is that punitive damages is bifurcated, which means that it's uh-huh. a possible separate trial. I don't know. The The judge did mention it in in the instructions that it is bifurcated, but I don't know how clearly it came across. In the last trial that I had, um, they had found, uh, they had made a finding on liability in favor of my client, but then the judge had to instruct them, this is after they went to deliberations, that, oh, wait, you have to also uh, consider punitive damages. And then after that, it's like a second mini-trial, Gary. So we had to put on additional witnesses to talk about how you need to exacerbate these penalties to really punish and it was it was a about at least I would say an hour of additional testimony that happened. The jury was not happy with that, so uh, sure. I don't know because they thought that they were going to leave after they had that verdict. And again, I think part of it was just um, clearly conveying that. I don't know. Hopefully, that's happened here. But um, and again, maybe the judge does a different judge Schaller in terms of how they're going to do that. But uh, usually, it's going to be a separate little mini trial talking about punitive damages and why you should increase and punish to make sure that they never do this again. Uh, Borlet has already been laying the seeds for that. He's already been talking about that in even in just his regular closing argument. So the way that it works is they're going to go into deliberation, start at about 9.15. If they have any questions, they'll come out. Everybody will come back into the, the room again while they ask the judge a question. The, jur- the lawyers are going to agree on an acceptable response to clarify one of the jury instructions and they'll go back in, come out with a verdict, and again, if it goes McNair's way, have a mini trial um, potentially to talk about punitive damages, and then go back into deliberations. Maybe this all is done Monday. I think maybe as far as liability um, for 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 defamation, there's a good chance that it that'll finish Monday. But but you never know. I I don't know. Jurors sometimes will take longer. It may, it may go another day or two. But 
I would say but we possibly shouldn't, We should know an answer quick. We should know an answer quick. Hopefully, hopefully, okay. hopefully quickly. Um, within a day, I, I would say. My educated guess, a day for, for defamation. I don't know. If they go till the end of the day, then they'll have to come back for the punitive damages. Uh, but if they're able to come in earlier, then, then maybe everything might get wrapped up on Monday. Sounds good. Well, we'll look forward to, uh, to seeing how this one is resolved. Thanks for all your, uh, your opinions on this one, Lizelle. You have painted the picture just as Bruce Burlett did. And, uh, we'll see what happens on Wednesday, on Monday. This will be fun. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. Thank you. For Lizelle Brad, for Lizelle Brad, this is Gary Paskowitz. You're listening to the We Are SE podcast.